Hi, everyone. It's Damien Shield from Center for Medical Simulation, and I'm hosting Book Club today with my friends. We're going to be talking about the book Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I'm very excited about talking to everyone about it because I read this book first time a few months ago, and I've been paging through it and just been fascinating to see how much what Kim Scott is writing about from the business world applies to our day-to-day work. Kim Scott is the co-founder and CEO of Candor, Inc., And previously, she was the lead on Apple University, so she worked closely with Steve Jobs and other folks there. Before that, she came from Twitter, and she had also worked with Sheryl Sandberg, who recommends the book. And it's been making waves, I think, both on Twitter and they have their own podcast. Uh, I just think their stuff really resonates, and looking forward to talking to you all about it. So uh, let's see who's in the rooms. Janice Palaganis, I know you're here. What's up? Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, Mary Faye. Hi, everybody. Kate Morse, how are you doing? Great. Good afternoon, everybody. And I understand Steph Barwick and Sarah Jansons are there with you. Yep. Hi, everybody. Hi. Welcome to Boston. Thank you. And Robert Simon. Hi, this is Robert. Uh, nice to be with you this afternoon. Yeah, glad to see you. Grace Eng, my friend. Hey, everyone. Greetings from New York City. And last but not least, Jenny Rudolph. Hey, everybody. Looking forward to figuring out how do we care personally while challenging directly. Yeah, so um, let's start there. I'd like to uh, uh, just give a little pretty short version of my reading of the book, then get folks' reactions to that. So this book, which you can hear me paging through, I actually have the real book. It's two cardboard flaps with some pages in between, about uh, 220 pages. Pretty nice to have an actual book on my hands. Kim Scott developed this this method and uh, her practice when she was both leading courses at at Apple. Uh, she had gotten into that because she was a really great leader of teams at Google, and she created teams where there was a culture of feedback, where people gave, got, and encouraged feedback. When she then formalized it into her work at Apple, and then later on to her CEO coaching practice with CEOs of Twitter, Ship, and others. She uh, now wrote it up as a book and calls it a new management philosophy. And uh, the heart of it is to be in the radical candor quadrant. She has a two by two matrix. And one axis, as Jenny said, is to care personally. That's to really uh, be interested in people, either your direct report, your learners, your peers, your bosses as people. And I think in our work, that's the Uh, curiosity and the basic assumption, but particularly the curiosity, the really being interested in them, their ideas, and aligning with them. And the other axis is challenge directly. So uh, being direct in your observation and uh, sharing your advocacy. In the two-by-two matrix, she says you want to be in the radical candor quadrant. So what are the other quadrants when you And I think her language is at times extreme, but she says, if you fail on one of the two axes, so if you you care personally, but you don't challenge directly, she calls that ruinous empathy. I think it's interesting. It's compelling. She gives examples of employees that she really liked so much that she just felt bad giving them the direct feedback, and then she ended up having to fire them. So ruinous empathy doesn't help their career, their work, uh, or you as their boss. The subtitle to the book is How to Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. And so as we're translating it into our 
learner-centered context, how to be an excellent teacher without uh, losing the learner might be a parallel. If you challenge directly but fail to care personally, she calls that obnoxious aggression. That's, uh, I think, most akin to our judgmental, overtly judgmental stance, and in a way also probably the non-judgmental stance. Probably the worst quadrant, she says, is if you fail in both regards, so that's manipulative insincerity, uh, where you don't care and you don't challenge directly. So uh, I think that's, I, I've been thinking about it because Jenny asked me, like, where, how does this map out to our different axes? And I think manipulative insincerity is easing in and just asking people, but not because we think they'll help them, but just because you don't really care. And even I can add to that. I, I think even when we're so worried as educators about ourselves and how we're coming across, and we're just kind of like nodding our heads and not really caring about what they're saying, caring much more about ourselves. I think that can fall into the manipulative insincerity. Right. Big time. Because in, in the book, she says, you know, usually when you when you do the ruinous empathy, you don't speak up because you worry about them. In mm -hmm. manipulative insincerity, you don't speak up because you worry about you and what will right. people say because of that. So that's the short version of the content. Uh, what I really loved about the book, too, is that she takes it even further because then she goes on to two other parts of the book. So the next is about how to uh, really reach uh, real results in terms of your organization and helping people go through a cycle of listening, clarifying, debating, deciding, persuading, executing and learning again. This is the GSD wheel, the getting shit done wheel. I enjoyed that as I was reading it the first time for everything that it did for my work as a leader of programs. And on my second time around and inspired by Mary's teaching around the microcycle, because I think that debriefing and teaching and learning is in a way a negotiation about will the learners consider taking your crazy ideas? So bringing people along through this wheel, I think, has an interesting parallel for our microcycle. The book is just full of really good ideas, examples, and stories, and keeps it pretty lighthearted and helps, I think, the reader with introspection. So that I'll stop my summary at that point, and I uh, would love to open it to others for discussion. Well, as an organizational behavior theorist, of course, I love the two-by-two, two, but one of the things I think I find most helpful and I really appreciated your summary, is I think that the dichotomy of caring personally while challenging directly is very easy to understand. And as someone who cares about high standards and high regard, I find that easy to understand way of putting things kind of challenges me directly to think about how do I communicate that dichotomy and how to unify it. And so I'd be really interested in other people's take on that. Let me just read a little example from from her on on this, just to, you know, for anyone who didn't hasn't read it recently or listeners who may not have picked up the book yet. So she gives an example of someone's fly is down. The zipper has not been uh, all the way zipped up. I don't know in Australia or in other places what you would call that. Here the slang is your fly is down. In radical candor, she describes that you would come over and whisper your fly is down because by whispering you're caring personally that you don't want to embarrass them but you do want to give them the important information directly in obnoxious aggression you would shout it look his fly is down it's providing the same information but it doesn't have the care personal 
in ruinous empathy, you'd stay silent because you're worried about his feelings. You don't want to embarrass him and put him on the spot or even make them know that you've noticed that they didn't re-zip their pants. And uh, as Janice was saying earlier, in the manipulative insincerity quadrant, you stay silent because you're worried about your feelings. How will you be perceived for pointing this out? So the care personally is the high regard. The challenge directly is, the, is, the high, is akin to the high standards and achieving both of those uh, in a helpful, respectful way. It, it's all about that. Yeah, well, I'm putting that out as a uh, maybe a test idea for the group, whether other people see that same parallelism or other people see it differently. I, I definitely saw the same parallelism. And I, I actually, it's one of the things that I really appreciated out of the book was I felt like she was able to simplify many of the things that I have trouble articulating, simplifying a lot of the concepts that we teach into one diagram and two word and two phrases. So I, I really appreciated the the way she simplifies exactly, I think, what we teach. I had an I had an example uh, from my clinical shift, uh, not yesterday, but the on Friday. I had a very competent resident, and a stroke patient needed an arterial line, and the more senior resident, who was a second year, said she would talk the first year through it. So they go over there, they do the arterial line, it takes two tries, eventually they're successful and everyone's happy. Well, later on, towards the end of the shift, I, I still uh, wanted to talk about what I saw, which was that neither of them were wearing eye protection and that I was worried about the arterial blood spurting into the into the eyes of at least one of them or even somebody else. And I had to really think about how do I, you know, they did this great job. I want to celebrate that. I don't want to take away from that. But at the same time, I have more information for them. Uh, so I, I channeled in, in that case, I, I, I thought this book helped me because I was able to say, uh, well, first, I decided to turn to the resident who was the supervisor and said, you know, you know, one of the things I, you know, I want to bring up is you're now moving into supervision. And so you have to watch out for other people. So thinking about this, it may not be on your radar screen. I try to expressed that I was on her side about it, that it wasn't a trying to be a critique for critique's sake, but it was to raise the standard, help her think about things she, she had. It. That helped me go first to her and then to the other resident, because uh, the message is still, you should wear eye protection uh, whenever doing these procedures. I like that, Damien, because I'm obsessed with how do we make it possible for people to hold high regard and high standards at the same time? How do we allow people to challenge directly while caring personally? And my hypothesis is if we can dial up caring personally at the time of challenging directly, or if you can dial up caring personally at the time of needing to help someone meet a standard, it transforms your own internal dialogue from this person is an idiot I have to correct to this person is someone I care about and I want to help. However, I still think this is always difficult for people, and I wonder what tricks or techniques other people on the call have found useful for dialing up the caring personally while challenging directly. I love what you're saying, Jenny. I honestly, as I was reading this, I was thinking, gosh, which one is the most difficult to learn, the challenge directly or the caring personally? 
And how do you learn those? And and do you learn, you know, the skills of challenging directly first? It's so difficult to try to learn it together. <laughs> I mean, what is the best approach? Yeah. So I just love your question. And in my example, I just didn't want to be seen as a criticizer in the space of success. You know, to answer some of that, to me, the, the thing was to manage myself and get the courage to say, okay, I have something important to say, and it's a helpful thing. So in the way that you dealt with the social anxiety of having to critique in the context of success, which in some ways is easier than critiquing in the context of when somebody's not doing well, was to dial up your own identity as seeing yourself as a caring person who was helping these other people do self-care or self-protection. Yeah, I think I'm in the context of the conversation that the reason I was bringing up the eye protection was not to catch them on their mistake, was not to tell them what the policy is or the regulation or to get them to do the right thing, but because I don't want them to get exposed to body fluids in the future. And I, I just dialed up that message about the, what is it that Robert, you always say to us, it's, it's what's right, not who's right. Just want to chime in here to respond to Jenny's question, like understanding this is hard and what are some of the strategies? And, you know, I'm looking at this through the lens of an administrator who needs to manage the performance of a group of people over time and not as snapshots. The way that I've come to think of it, I think it's by looking at the bigger picture of what I need to accomplish organizationally and remembering that I'm being asked to make long-range plans, three, five, ten years, if I don't give people honest feedback in a caring way that impacts them personally, then I am not going to achieve the larger long-range goals. Like if I'm still struggling day-to-day with giving people feedback, then I really won't be able to focus on the long range. So every time I find myself struggling, if I try to remember the long-term goals that I'm trying to accomplish, I think personally that had helped me. Well, I love that uh, in my um, leader administrator role also, Grace, because it means that you're creating capacity on an ongoing basis so that things could or should get easier. You put it in the very positive sense. I could also think about it in the more selfish self-preservation sense, which I had not thought of before, which is if I don't deal with this difficult situation right now, I'm just going to have to deal with it again later. And then I'm going to have to deal with it again later. And, and what you're saying is if you deal with it properly or with caring and directness right away, you might start a positive feedback loop where people get better and then things get even better and even better versus keeping them in static motion or stasis or getting worse. Yeah, I love how you put it, Jenny. It's really hoping to focus on doing positive things. And the only way to do it is by being honest and caring and give them feedback early and frequent. Building on this, Grace, what I'm hearing you describe is a lot on the challenge directly side. I hear you saying the care personal, the you know, care and do it in a caring way. I think one of the ways in which this book moved me is that in Kim Scott's argument, the care personally is not a episodic thing that you turn on at the moment of feedback, like high standards and high regard at the same time. She does this, I think, good job building the argument that 
working with your team, that's the relationship. That is the thing that has to always be there, that you create a context on your team to be able to challenge directly because you care personally. It's not something that you activate, it's something that you develop. She describes even from interviewing, the interviewing process of hiring involves getting to know people. The work in the teams includes not just social events, but time to really get to know each other because it's in it's in that long term that you develop that ability, desire, habit of caring personally. She even goes into t- very helpful stuff around how do you do annual reviews, career conversations, really trying to help people succeed, figuring out who is in the right job and for how long, ready to be promoted, too bored, uh, thinking about other things. Etc. So to me, I think as an organization, we've been thinking about how do we do this teaching of skill base of difficult conversations in that moment. This book gave me a bit of a longer horizon on that. So I totally agree about, you know, one builds trust over time. People, you know, learn that you are holding the basic assumption or holding them in high regard or uh, caring about them, however we want to put it. I, I think that that's important. You know, that takes time. So that's one way to build trust. We as uh, instructors or as workers, for that matter, don't always have the time to build those relationships. You know, some of our interaction with other people may be, you know, short or episodic or, you know, we just don't have that kind of time. I guess I got a little worried about this notion of radical, just the wording of radical candor. Like think back to trying to teach uh, your child about the difference between being honest and being tactful. Like that's a really difficult thing for for kids to learn. Like where is that line? So I can admit, you know, the the word radical means like really outspoken, really speak your mind. And I understand there's, you know, sort of a marketing thing to this notion of radical candor. At the same time, you know, I could say something like, Amy, you know, I really think you're a great guy. You know, you're just a fabulous person. I just wish you'd learn, I just wish you'd learn to give feedback in a little more, you know, humane way. What do you think? Like that doesn't feel very good. And if that was just a brief encounter, then, you know, that wouldn't leave either of us very good. So we can use this quadrant, if you will. I've seen people do it, use it kind of as a weapon. Like I'm saying the right things, but I really need to let you know what's on my mind. I can respond to that just a little bit. I, I, I do share the interest or, you know, the developmental challenge of mm. radical candor versus tact. I will say she is pretty rigorous about a applying the same standards that the feedback literature does and that we try to apply in our courses around being super specific. So she'd probably critique that comment of be more humane as a little too far up the ladder of inference or a little too abstract and would, uh, in coaching you, say, what did you see specifically that Damien should do differently? So I Embrace the concern around the terminology potentially is inviting uh, weaponizing feedback. But I also, having read the book, see that she's very cautious and careful about helping people learn to be specific. Yeah, I, I thought she was using it in terms of how we sometimes do it, too, when we say that pairing advocacy and inquiry is so unusual. So I think she meant she means that radical as in not common. To me, I think that's why the care personally axis is it's not an episodic thing. It's a, you have to have it. It's almost like it is, 
in a way the curiosity and the basic assumption like you wouldn't weaponize it if you were curious and holding them in high regard it, it just wouldn't come out that way so i agree with all that i am just worried about the phrasing of radical candor and i i totally agree with what jenny said and what damien said i'm still left with a little bit of an uneasiness with that kind of language you know, I think I had a little bit of the same reaction, Robert. Like I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, I wish they just called it care personally and challenged directly. <laughs> like, that would just be so clear to the world. I know I reread yesterday the moment where she says, you know, I could have called, called it honest, but I didn't. I don't know if you have it there, but she, she, she's pretty straight up about it early on yet another idea is that the context like in silicon valley radical candor speaks to the right kind of culture change needed within an organization i would love to go back to jenny's question about strategy i mean it just really sounds like she was fortunate to have joined deliberately developmental organizations where there is the culture there. And so I don't want to dismiss the fact that, you know, we, we were kind of talking about culture change and this is, you know, this could be much more difficult at, in different organizations and and having to peel away at some things to be able to to care personally and challenge directly and kind of infect your work environment. Kim Scott always talks about, or throughout her book, she talks about bringing your whole self to work and modeling and practicing. And I think Robert and Jenny have done that for me in my development. And so my actual tool and strategy has been like, I think of Robert or I think of Jenny as I'm about to do something if I'm uncomfortable and I, I try to channel them through me. I mean, that's really been my strategy. I think she explicitly says like, if you don't fit your environment, leave. I think she says that, right? I think that that's a number one strategy explicitly for um, listeners is, you know, finding a place that has that culture embedded and experiencing it. And that will really take you out of your comfort zone if you feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable with it. So you could practice. So I want to uh, spend just a little bit of time thinking about uh, how this might apply to debriefing and the microcycle. So she says towards the beginning of a you're trying to do, do a project, launch a product, develop a new way of working with customers. She says, you know, you start by listening and clarifying people's ideas and you're taking this in. She suggests you then debate uh, the ideas for the ideas, not who's right, but or what, you know, who's bringing them, but what the ideas might be, but withhold the decision involve as many people as possible to the debate, but then take it to a smaller deciding team, depending on what's necessary. Just because you decide it doesn't mean people are gonna then do it or follow, so you have to then persuade them, again, with the same radical candor, curiosity, and listening, that they should follow you in this path towards executing, and when you do, you should then, again, elicit feedback to learn from it. So to me, that sounded kind of like the understanding phase where you might put something out there and then listen for frames, clarify, get into some discussion and really debating. In the teaching and learning process, it's really ultimately up to the learners to decide if they are persuaded by this discussion. You've gone to the board, you've uh, batted around different options. They would then go off to execute in their next version of the of the case or if they were going back to their clinical environment. So to me, I thought this 
cycle fit in with our concept of the microcycle and understanding phase? And I was curious what other folks thought about that. Well, I think it's an interesting idea that is, in my view, in synchrony with balancing, advocating for your ideas and inquiring into other people's ideas, which in and of itself is an unusual social pattern because many adults confound being tactful and polite, being respectful. People often don't feel comfortable advocating for their ideas because they worry that they're going to be imposing them on others. And therefore, we don't hear as much about what everybody's thinking. So I see the value in this cycle, but I connect it to the commitment that uh, Janice raised earlier of being in a group or a culture that's committed to deliberate development, both of the individuals and uh, kind of research and development on the ideas, testing the ideas themselves. Um, so this micro cycle of putting out your ideas, testing them, persuading, trying them, requires a friendly contact in order to work. So I think that's a, another whole piece of the value of this book, if, if I might just stick to that for a second, which is this, this cycle of learning within a conversation is really important. But the values and norms that that individual conversation or group conversation throws off for the rest of the organization, the norms, the values, the risk-taking, the willingness to be wrong, the fallibility, the failing early in learning, modeling all that within that cycle is a secondary and key benefit in my view. And I see that as something that uh, Grace Ang was talking about earlier, why she has such a strong commitment to giving feedback or having good feedback conversations, because she's creating a context not only that builds capability, but that in the individuals, but creates capability in her organization. I'm thinking, yes, I love, Jenny, your comments about creating capacity. I think that's um, a great way of putting what I was trying to articulate. I think that in my mind, if I don't spend time thinking about what is my feedback strategy and just do it the same way every time with caring personally and challenging directly as best I can, then I would have personally a mental capacity to focus on other things. And I think then the organization, like the staff wouldn't be worrying about, oh, what's Grace going to say to me? How's she going to approach it? Like they would know and be able to expect how Grace would approach them, you know, if we need to have a conversation. So I think it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Grace. And in just doing what you're doing, that's a strategy in itself, teaching others, because you're modeling for others, you know, ways to communicate, think, you know, different tones and approaches that they can adopt. Yeah, I love that. And just being predictable in, you know, staff's eyes, it's our colleagues' eyes. I think that's, I'm guessing that's useful to them. Uh, I'd like to invite anyone who hasn't yet got a chance to share uh, to get us started with final reflections and takeaways on uh, this book. Hey guys, this is Mary. You know, as I was reading the book, one thing that I think was most important in making caring personally almost sort of automatic is the idea of bringing our whole selves to work. And I think many times we see our 
personal life and our work life as being very separate. And I think this is something that CMS also does really well is that we bring our whole selves to work and we also interact with people as holistic human beings. And I think it's no mistake that as Jenny and Damien and Walter and I were thinking about values for the IMS going forward, one of the things we said was always seeing our learners as holistic human beings. And I think as we conduct ourselves with our whole selves and see other people as whole selves, the caring personally really is able to take center stage because we realize that nobody's perfect and everyone has flaws, but everyone's really striving to be the best they can. So I think that's what really resonated with me in this book the most. I really liked the way that she reframed feedback as guidance. I think that helped me understand a little bit more about aligning with my learners and that really then taps into that need to care personally about them all. Clinicians have this skill that they employ with their patients on a regular basis and how we can see a way to transfer that skill to our learners um, and see that as a relationship, just like we see the patient relationship where we care personally about what happens to that patient, but we also care deeply about making sure that they have all the information when it may be bad news. So for them, the feedback, I'm sort of seeing it in that relationship that way, that you're sharing bad news or difficult news. And if we could transfer that caring and and being able to have a difficult conversation, potentially difficult conversation to our learners, we already have some of those skills. We just need to uh, move them to a different context. One of my biggest takeaways is trying to think about how to convey compelling, potent ideas in a way that people can really understand easily. And I think um, challenging directly and caring personally is a really genius example of that. And so I'm kind of taking that on board to continue to think about how to do that with my work. Thank you for the opportunity for to uh, talk to you about this book with you this uh, afternoon. And uh, if anybody has any radically candid feedback for uh, how we ran the session, what we're doing with it. Uh, I'd love to hear from you as well. The CMS Book Club is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and explore our faculty development course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.